From which perspective will the ending make any sense at all? I would say that if you look at it from a meta-effective perspective, in other words, we're looking at it as a piece of fiction, and we're expecting our audiences to also understand it as a piece of fiction. In other words, we're not just lost in the world that is created within the narrative. We are understanding ourselves as watching this and understanding that we are watching characters. And this is the only way that this ending truly makes any sense. Because we have a story where we are done watching these characters change and grow and evolve and essentially and literally save the universe. So we are done with the story by the time we're at this ending and everything that we could see them do that's interesting from the audience's perspective has already been shown, except for this very last part of the ending. So when we see each of them, these characters basically say, we're done, that's it. There's no more story and we're okay with that. This gives us as an audience a way to say goodbye to each of these characters one by one and say essentially, that's great, you've changed into the person you need to be. You've had all these happy moments. We can say goodbye. And it almost works. It almost works because, unfortunately, as a piece of fiction, this ending pretty much goes against everything that a fiction should have that's coherent. So what does this mean? It means that, let me put it this way, what are the things that a fiction should have and what should a piece of fiction do well? So there are five things that I would say that are essentially betrayed. One, the tone of the fiction. Two, the characters of the fiction. Three, the world of the fiction. Four, the theme. And five, the audience and the audience's expectations. All right, so let's go through this one by one. First, what do I mean by the tone? The tone throughout the series is actually a light-hearted comedy. It's not really a dramatic, tear-wrenching narrative that's taking place here. It's not some kind of dramatic story where people are expected to sacrifice themselves or die at any point. In fact, it takes place in the afterlife, and we never see any real depiction of any kind of everlasting death. So the whole tone throughout this whole series has been pretty lighthearted. We don't expect any really terrible things to happen. There's no violence. There's no really cruel things that do happen all the time in human earthly life. So at the end, when we have this kind of door and you can never retrieve these characters ever again, and they're walking through this one by one, it's all very poignant and very heart-wrenching, very sad kind of realities being shown. So this ending really goes against everything we've seen so far. Number two, we do have character inconsistency by the end. We see this, I think, very strongly with the two characters, Chi and the character, Jason. We see these two not really acting the way that we would expect them to. I know a lot of time has passed in this series, so I'm not really talking about the fact that Chi has finally become decisive rather than indecisive. I'm not really talking about that. 
I'm talking about the fact that so Chidi, when he stops being indecisive, this is a good thing because it's a virtue to be decisive. One of the things that has always been his virtue since the beginning is his conscientiousness, his willingness to be very careful about how he affects the world around him, as well as his willingness to sacrifice his happiness for the benefit of others. This is a virtue. This is not something that needs to be changed, and this is not the kind of thing that either as a protagonist or as a member of The Good Place, he should have changed about himself. But that's exactly what does change by the end, because when he makes it known and clear to Eleanor that he's done existing, it's very hurtful to her. And he should know that, and he should be sensitive to that, and he would have been like that long ago except for some reason he isn't any longer. And it only makes sense because the authors want it to happen. The authors want this ending where he disappears. He ends his existence. That's what they want. But otherwise it doesn't make sense. Jason also doesn't make sense because he seems out of all anybody to be the kind of person to just be okay existing. And in fact, that's exactly what he ends up doing because we know by the end he's looking for something that he has made for his love, Janet, and he can't find it, so he sticks around for a very, very long time. In a sense, he becomes, as Janet says, like a monk. What this has shown is that he's completely content just existing. He doesn't need to not exist. So why does he go through the door? It really makes no sense. It really doesn't make any sense. You need to keep world consistency. So this is the third one. You need to keep a consistent world within the fiction. The idea that you can remove a person's entire memory, but somehow not use it by the end, really doesn't make any sense. If you want things to be fresh, why not give people command over their own memory? So plenty of people have kind of thought about this idea, oh, I wish I could watch that movie for the first time over again. Well, we have a world in which that's possible. So why not just do that? And then if you wanted to see your first time again, you could just restore that memory, which has already been shown to be an ability, a capability of both the bad and good worlds. So a lot of this kind of just doesn't really make sense. Number four, the theme. The theme has always been optimistic. The theme has always been, well, we don't have to settle for what is, we can look forward to what could be. It's a very creative outlook on life. And of course, that is also lost here by the ending because rather than just thinking about different ways in which people can live through infinity, rather than thinking about questions of what makes life good, philosophically, what makes life happy, rather than simply what duties and obligations we might have, or any of the other frameworks that we have, virtue-based ethics, etc. Rather than looking at only from there, why not look at what makes life beautiful? And again, this kind of goes back to the Confucian perspective, which asks, what makes life beautiful? What makes life enjoyable? How do we pursue that? Arguably also touched on by the ancient Greek philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, where there are questions of eudaimonia, those things are never really explored either. Nor is this idea, and this kind of goes also back to the world consistency question, which is why is it that these people simply do not help those who have not yet reached a good place? 
because another theme of this whole story is to help other people, to be good to other people. And it's really quite selfish to just think about not existing because you're just simply done consuming experiences. This is something that you should also think about when you think about your own life. Do you want to just be somebody who consumes experiences, waits for somebody to make a movie for you, waits for somebody to write a book that you would enjoy reading for you? Do you want to be that kind of person to just wait for something to happen to you? And I think if you put some thought into it, obviously the answer is, is no. But once you've reached that answer, how are you going to go about that? How are you going to learn these things? How are you going to make this consistent and incorporated and cohesive with your own life and your own set of morality? These are the big questions. These are the big questions that we struggle with when we study philosophy. At least when we study philosophy the correct way and we don't simply reduce it into some overly intellectual exercise. Which is actually the real reason why a lot of people either, maybe they don't hate moral philosophy professors, but they do ignore them and I would say for pretty good reason. Alright, the last one is the audience. I do believe as myself an audience member of the show, I do believe that the audience essentially is unfortunately betrayed as well by the writers. The writers want to have this poignant ending, one that's meaningful, one that they can control, one that isn't just, you know, they want to end a series that's not just drawn out season after season until it becomes unprofitable for the network. And I applaud them for that. What I don't applaud them for is to give this kind of ending where they switch gears all of a sudden. They want to be very serious after being very lighthearted for four seasons and give this very memorable ending that is really just about seeing people end their lives, end their existence one by one. It's very painful to watch. You know, in fact, now every time I see this kind of playful picture of these characters, I kind of feel like this is sort of one of those pictures that you see part of an obituary or something. It gets a very kind of sad and morbid feeling when you see that. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about is how would I rewrite the ending? And I think I've kind of alluded to it a little bit here and there, but the way I would rewrite the ending is as follows. I would not go at all in this direction that they went into. What I would look at is how they as individuals go about trying to help the people who have not yet reached a good place, reach a good place. And so this is sort of the whole Bodhisattva kind of thing. But of course this could be all very comedic that these different characters using their own kind of social ways of being, you know, relating to each other. I think the most obvious way is when we have Tahani do a lot of name dropping. Or you could just simply have GD do some pontification, you know, sort of lecture people. And of course, a lot of these things won't work, especially depending on which personality is trying to get into the good place. There's just a lot of fun that could be had with her. It's just very open-ended, very bright, very optimistic at the end, and just gives them an infinity of things to do. We also, I think, is really interesting here. We don't see any children uh, being had, and I, I have a lot of kind of problems with this question, just in general, not just for the series, but it seems like every afterlife, nobody has children. And that's kind of a weird thing to me, personally, to believe in, because the world is full of people who have never gotten married or have been infertile throughout their lives, who have died before the opportunity to have their own children. And having children is a very important part of being human. It's something that somebody took that opportunity from you. You should be furious at this person. 
And this is actually one of the ways that I would condemn modern life is that we've made it so hard to have children that I cannot buy a belief that these days are much better because of how difficult it is to have children without being very stressed out about it. Now that's kind of its own topic, but relevant to this question here of the afterlife, I think it's a little ridiculous that the question of children never comes up. It never comes up. So when we have this couple here, Chidi, Eleanor, they don't have children, it's a really kind of a strange thing to me. You know? So my point is, even if everybody ends up in a good place who has ever existed, you end up with this question, why can't they have children and just be happy with an ever-growing family? The common Christian belief is that once you're in heaven, you will be quote-unquote like the angels, and that's also interpreted to be not only is there not really a marriage relationship at that point, which I'm not really sure what that's supposed to mean. Jesus, I think, is being very intentionally ambiguous here because the people who are asking this question are not being respectful to him. And in a sense, he's kind of messing with them with an empty answer. A person is not required to give all the information and every aspect of what he believes with the person who's asking him the question is being insincere. So this is not to say that what Jesus is doing is wrong. He doesn't owe these hypocrites or these insincere questioners the full answer. And I don't believe we really have one here. So we don't really know what this means. But a common interpretation is that you have your opportunity to have children while on earth, but you don't get to have children in heaven. And I find that to be really illogical. It really truly doesn't make sense. There's a lot of people who wanted children or even simply wanted more children that do not get to have them on earth because of how evil the world is. And if you're going to believe in the God who restores everything, it's kind of hard to just say, well, nobody's going to have children once again to have I digress. I think ultimately, as an audience member, we want to have a happy ending, right? And we want to get that from this very lighthearted and ultimately happy and optimistic show. I would rewrite the ending this way. I would also still say, basically, they still take this, the Eridus ending that already came out. There's just one way to get out of this. My suggestion is really quick, condensed episode. If you're going to ever restart this whole series, season five. So season five begins with a condensed version of this last episode. And everybody walks through the door. But it turns out, as the camera zooms out, that this was all simply a fabrication. And so Michael starts standing there and says, See, now that kind of thing is what we have simulated would have happened had you not grown up and matured. And then everybody goes, Oh, okay. And then, you know, Eleanor says something like, yeah, that's a really crappy thing to do, right? And then you just continue the rest of the story. So you're essentially retconning this whole last episode. So you can make this whole thing your headcanon. I know that I'd rather forget the last episode, pretend it was just a weird dream that I had because I've been watching too much of this show, and just believe that the real ending was what I described. So I hope you enjoyed this whole series. It was much longer than I thought it would be. If you're interested in studying more philosophy, if you're interested in Confucian thought and a little bit of ancient Greek thought, it's very important for understanding the modern world because a lot of the modern world, and this is even true if you're living in Asia, okay, is actually modeled after the Greco-Roman historical institutions, most famously democracy. 
So as important as they think Confucianism is, unfortunately it is only superficially influential at this point. And if you hear anybody say stuff like, oh, these, you know, how does Confucianism affect business in South Korea or even Japan? Japan's never really been influenced by Confucianism all that much, right? But if you ever hear that kind of thinking, you should recognize that these people don't really know what they're talking about. So if you want to talk to or listen to somebody who does know who he's talking about, who is a Confucian scholar, you know, you can go ahead and continue and subscribe or whatever we have set up here for you to be able to, to follow. And you can come back, listen to what I have to say and explore a forgotten world of philosophy, but one that was very influential and brought a lot of meaning and happiness to people's lives many centuries ago. Thank you. This is Dusk Lantern. I hope you've enjoyed. Goodbye.